to share with you again. Thank you, Graham. Um, it's always a privilege to come. I think it's great to be a part of a series, uh, this series that we're doing on Esther at the moment, and uh, great to have uh, three of the, the women from our congregation uh, preaching through the book of Esther. And uh, Josh, of course, gave us a, a great introduction last week as well too. I've, I've got some quite a bit to get through this week, so I'm going to be sticking to my notes probably a little bit more than I, than I usually do, do but uh, I'm going to be concentrating today uh, on the first two chapters of, of Esther, and uh, I want to pick up on a number of the themes that Josh established last week. Interesting to preach here, you've sort of got to spin yourself around quite regularly, but uh, just to make sure everyone's still involved and not falling asleep in the corner. But one of the things that I love about the book of Esther, and it's a theme that will come up I'm sure each week as people are preaching through this book, uh, as Josh mentioned last week, God is never mentioned. It's one of those two books in the Bible where God's name is never mentioned. And, uh, and, and, and neither is there much reference to acts of worship or anything like that. But we can see so clearly his fingerprints uh, all over the events of the book. And uh, that's kind of the title I've got in my mind anyway for my message, God's Fingerprints. And the other thing I love about the book is that it's, it's an incredible uh, piece of drama. It's no wonder it's been made into movies and it's, it's just great. It's, it's, it's really dramatic. I remember reading it to my godchildren when they were little and uh, or telling the story to them. It's just, uh, it's just great. And it's really good that Youth Church is on this week because there's a few X-rated parts uh, that I might have to leave out if... The, so some of them still are here, but uh, if, if, they, if, they were, um, if they were still here with us. Um, and the Bible, of course, is very discreet in the way it says this. I've, I think I might have told this story before a number of years ago, but uh, some of you mightn't have been there. But one of my favorite stories from my time at Brisbane Boys College uh, was when I used to teach uh, Year 8 Christian Education. And you get a bunch of 13-year-old boys, and they're not really interested in the Bible straight up. But uh, I used to ask them uh, right at the beginning, the first lesson, what sort of literature they like reading. And, of course, you know, adventure, action, violence, and whatever. And I said, uh, I used to say to them, well, the Bible's full of all of that, you know. It's a great book to read. I said, it's even got some bits that are about sex. Suddenly they're all listening. And, uh, and, and they'd say, well, which bits? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. That's what they say. Which book? And I said, well, I can't tell you because they're actually quite X-rated and you can't read them until you're 16. And I, I wouldn't tell them anything else and off they'd go. And inevitably by the next week they would have asked one of the other Christian education teachers who sent them to the Song of Solomons and they'd come back and they'd say, there's nothing in that. And I'd say, ah, oh, there you go. You see, you can't understand it even until you're 16. <laughs> Open up their Bibles again, reading it again. But uh, Esther's references uh, to sex is a bit like that as well too. So Josh used the word sex I think three times last week, so I'm going to try to outdo him and use it uh, four times. Um, and yes, even as a single person I can talk meaningfully about sex, so that's exciting. So, um, just a little bit of background, first of all, about the book. It was uh, the, the events are, um, are placed around about 470 BC, and the Jews were in exile for the second time. First time was in Egypt, second time in Babylon. They'd originally been taken by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, but as happened in the Middle East, the superpowers kept, you know, destroying each other and creating new kingdoms. And now the Persians were in control, um, having overthrown the Babylonians. And the des despotic—I love that word—despotic King Xerxes is on the throne. So I've got some photos of him here if this works there you go that's the sort of uh, traditional um uh, you know fresco carving of, of, of stone carving of king xerxes but i quite like that one from the movie doesn't doesn't he look menacing what a menacing looking uh, looking character and we're told that um xerxes uh was ruling over 127 provinces from india to sudan so that's approximately the part of the world that he was controlling uh, so he was indeed uh, a very powerful and wealthy man. That is a very substantial area of land that he was in control of. And the Jewish people were in, in exile um, and in one of the, those really low points in their history. And it's interesting to watch the ebb and flow as you read through the Old Testament uh, of the, the, um, uh, the Jewish people. They were very vulnerable. 
uh, because they were displaced from their land. They were small in number and they were living in an environment totally hostile to the worship of their God. And all of those things uh, lead to real vulnerability. Mind you, of course, they got there. They got into that position by disobeying God um, and by worshipping foreign idols. And this was, a, again, a cycle, you know, then repentance, punishment, repentance, and back they'd come again, and eventually they would slip into it again. But they are in a very vulnerable position. If you like, they're hanging on by a thread. But it's, it strikes me whenever I reflect on the book of Esther or read it again. Um, now, I really can't talk about sex, can I? But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, when, it, with the, with the, when I read that book and I read these kind of sections in the Bible, that that is exactly the time when we are most likely to see God at work. If things are going well and, and we're feeling in control and our own resources and ingenuity and whatever else um, has gotten us to a pretty comfortable position, you're unlikely to see God at work. And the girls often say to me at school, how come we don't see miracles anymore like we do, like they did in Jesus' day? And, and I know that there are parts of the world where they are seeing miracles very regularly. And I can share a number of um, miracles with, with them from my life. And they all occur when I was somewhere out on a limb, where I was doing something that really could easily go pear-shaped or, you know, but by the grace of God didn't, um, or where, I, you know, in obedience to God was um, uh, involved in things that were really pushing my limits. Uh, it's just so very true. It's when we're desperate, uh, when it's blatantly obvious that we're out of our depth and completely powerless, when our weakness is most on display, surprise, surprise, that's, that's when we see God's power at work. And very much this was the case in Esther. So just to give you a bit of a, a summary of the first couple of chapters, I'm going to work my way through the story uh, and then and make a few comments and then draw some themes at the end is where we're heading today. Okay, so Xerxes, this um, incredibly powerful, wealthy and despotic king, throws a huge party for his noblemen and the, the chiefs in his army. And as Josh said last week, a party that goes for six months, just stop and think about that for a minute, um, involves a lot of feasting and drinking. And incidentally, there are a number of feasts mentioned throughout the book of Esther, and every one of them occurs at a critical point in the story. They're, they're, they're nice little kind of markers uh, along the way. And uh, this is the first one, this incredible um, you know, uh, feast that's going on. Uh, they each signal an important development. Uh, and it's unimaginable, uh, unimaginable to us, but it was certainly a deliberate show of his power and his wealth. He really was showing off. But then he goes a step too far. While he's entertaining the men at this lavish, never-ending party, and after a particularly heavy week of drinking, uh, he decides. Um, uh, so, what, sorry, while he's doing that, his wife is entertaining the men somewhere else. So the men had many concub- uh, Sorry, the king had many concubines, and he could choose the most beautiful to be his wife. And indeed, history tells us that Vashti was incredibly beautiful. So this is one image portrayed of her. I, partic- I, I chose that one. It's a little bit dark and whatever, but you know what? The headpiece made me think of Kate Miller-Heidke and last, last week's exciting stuff at Eurovision. I thought maybe it was that sort of an image that inspired Kate's amazing headpiece last week. But she was incredibly beautiful. So, um, so Xerxes, after a week of binge drinking and probably not thinking very straight, decides that he'll show off his beautiful wife. He's showing off his wealth through the amazing feast, but he's going to show off his wife, kind of like a prized thoroughbred, you know, to all the other men gathered there. So he summons her and unbelievably she refuses to come. And, and again, it's a bit uh, hard for us to imagine what that, how that could even happen. Um, I'd love to know a bit more about Vashti and what caused her to act this way when the consequences were fairly predictable. We're not talking about a king like rulers are today. I mean, we live in a democracy and we just, where we're very free to criticise our leaders online and do whatever we want and mostly get away with it. But we're talking about a place where, you know, a situation where you did not say a word out of place, you know, or you, would, you were gone, that was it. 
Um, so it's incredible, actually, that Vashti did this. And I wondered to myself, was she drunk too? Maybe she was having a good time with the women. I don't know. Was it some sort of an impulsive decision? Maybe she was a bit of an impulsive person. Um, had, she, had she not seen her husband for so long through this party that she'd forgotten how insequential and how easily replaced she was in the world of Xerxes? But suddenly she does something... Whoa, you know, um, quite ridiculous. And, of course, being a, a complete narcissist and no doubt confused about why this mere woman has dared to defy his command, Xerxes is furious. So he asks his most trusted officials what he should do. It's interesting when you've got someone who is a despot and a narcissist in charge, they've got minions around them and uh, they're just sort of, all they're interested in is what's the thing that will keep him happiest, not what's the right thing to do. Um, so they, they just sort of sensed that something drastic was needed to soothe his wounded pride. Uh, so they suggest that she be banned from the king's presence forever and that he find himself a new chief wife. So I just want to read a little bit. I was reminded this week how powerful it is the reading of Scripture. And I love the way Sherilyn does that for us regularly each week. It's very important to read the Scripture um, together and or, or to read it out loud so that we hear that regularly together. So there's a few names here that will sort of trip me up probably but this comes from Esther chapter 1 then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and of the officials not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus for the queen's behavior will be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of all the queen's behaviour will say the same thing to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. I think this is really quite, um, <laughs> quite funny. Um, one of the reasons given for this drastic action against Queen Vashti is that uh, otherwise what she's done would set a bad example for all the other women of the realm who might decide that they all would rather not be treated like objects by their husbands. And it amuses me that in a culture that where men are so obviously dominant and powerful and women so disempowered and dominated that the men and the most powerful men in the land this is too are so easily threatened by their wives it's incredible isn't it suddenly one little act of disobedience and everybody's going to rise up and there'll be trouble everywhere that doesn't happen today men aren't threatened by women today in my experience but I don't know because I'm not married to one but just as a little aside and I'm very serious in this part of it um, it raises an issue that I think is still a problem today and that is uh, the poor treatment of women by some men who seek to justify their actions unfortunately in Christian circles based on the Bible's in particularly the Bible's teaching in Ephesians about the men being the head of the wife and this is an issue I'm not going to go into it in great detail today but it's one that we ought to look at and be aware of at different times because it's given the church a bad name in many times and it's been interpreted that at least we're, we're sanctioning or at least tolerating not speaking up against domestic violence enough and this has been a, a genuine and a, and it validated unfortunately in some areas criticism um, of us as a church and um, you know it's an issue that we need to be seen to be incredibly clear about today uh, in our society because we don't want to give unnecessary reasons for people to complain about us um, and it's just uh, it's really important it, it, we need to be very vigilant in this age of changing gender roles and and theories and so on um, to not give any unnecessary cause for offense um, and at this point in the story okay moving on in the story we are introduced to the wise and proactive jewish exile mordecai and his beautiful cousin Esther, or Hadassah is the uh, Jewish name for Esther. The king's officials are sent off to gather up the most beautiful virgin girls in the land to add them to the king's harem, and Esther ends up being one of them. So she's rounded up with the others because uh, she wasn't a particularly beautiful girl, we're told. 
And uh, the chief eunuch in charge of the virgins, he takes a liking to Esther. And it seems to be not just her beauty, but her character that somehow captures his attention. And so she's rounded up, you know, as a potential new replacement chief wife for the king. Um, and she, she sort of gets into a position of uh, pole position, I suppose, if we take the sports analogy just a little bit further. Um, because um, Hegai, the, the eunuch, puts her in a, in a special place. So if it, it says, uh, is this right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the Jews, the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, um, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. That belonged with the other one, really. So then we move on to, um, uh, to Mordecai and to Hegai. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jaya, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. We bring, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Uh, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So Esther is now in a kind of a, coming into a, um, a pole position, so to speak. Now, it's interesting here. Um, the beauty treatments, it says, takes 12 months. 12 months to get ready to be presented to the king. Now, I've been working in a girls' school for a while. And uh, those of you with teenage or young adult daughters will understand this. Um, the Somerville House Girls spend at least 48 hours getting ready for the senior formal each year. I always love to ask them and their partners when they started getting ready. And the girls, it's usually the day before. The boys, it's like oh, about 45 minutes ago, you know. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's 48 hours I thought was, um, was, it was pretty bad enough. Fake nails, fake tan, they've got to be done the day before. Uh, hair, makeup, eyelash extensions, etc., etc. But 12 months is quite amazing. Mind you, when I talk to them at the start of the year and they're all on ball diets, as they call them, and they're no, no longer consuming as many Tim Tams in my Tim Tam suppers, um, then I, I, I suppose perhaps 12 months they might start thinking about it well beforehand, picking dresses and so on. But anyway, just, uh, that's just an aside. Add, to add to the despotic image we have of this dreadful king, these virgin girls each get to spend a night with him to see who can please him best. Well, if we thought that contemporary beauty contests were a bit non-PC, this one has its chief, as its chief criteria how good you are in the bedroom. So it's a bit like t how Tinder works, I think, not that I'd know. But, you know, lot, lots of sex... Lots of... Um, yeah, I knew that, didn't I? Yeah, I enjoy that. Lots of sexual partners, um, but who, and who cares about the collateral damage along the way? Um, at this point, though, I'd like to make another, a comment about another issue that Josh raised last week, and one that comes up when you read most of the commentaries about Esther. Was Esther morally compromised by her actions in this part of the story? And they sort of debate this back and forth. It actually triggered something a bit 
like annoyance in me to read this because she had no choice at all about this. I'm not quite sure how she could be morally compromised. She had no choice at all about her night with the king. Perhaps the minimalist thing would have been to close her eyes and think of Jerusalem. <laughs> but it seems that instead of that, she performed very well, okay? So this, you know, I mean, the bottom line is this, this was a rape, wasn't it? This is rape. And there's no moral compromise as far as I can see on Esther's part. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that this part of her actions anyway compromised her morally as she really had no choice in the matter, especially if she wanted to stay alive. Um, anyway, she wins the sex competition or beauty pageant or whatever it was and she's crowned queen and is honoured with another banquet uh, by King Xerxes. So here's a little bit um, uh, from chapter 2. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who'd taken her as his own daughter, to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who knew her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast, another feast, for all his officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts for royal, with royal generosity. So Esther decides to um, make the most of the situation, I guess, and ends up in a position of um, quite strong influence, as we see later on in the story. And at the end of chapter 2, um, which I think was my brief, the end of chapter 2, um, it ends with the story about, a story about Mordecai, uh, who's been kind of hovering in the background, discreetly advising his young cousin uh, throughout these events. Um, and it, it, it ends up with Mordecai uncovering a plot by two other characters, uh, who's one of whom's name is Big Thanner. I think it's a wonderful name, Big Thanner. Um, you can't imagine him as a skinny little fellow, can you? It just doesn't come with it. But anyway, there's a plot to assassinate the king, um, which was a common problem for despots, I think. Um, but Mordecai passes this information on to Esther, who passes it on to the king. And so the king, that plot is foiled, and these two are disposed of. Um, and then again, they both gain more favour with, with Xerxes. Uh, and this event is recorded and later on becomes a key part of the drama. Um, but you'll have to wait to hear from Leanne or Joy about that. Um, so you can look forward to that. Are you next week, Leanne? Or? Yeah, there you go. Um, so the, the, it comes up again, this business about Mordecai discovering this plot to assassinate the king, telling Esther, him telling Esther, her telling the king. So that's the, that brings us to the end of chapter two with this amazing rise of this young woman who was an exile and, and really nobody except that she was incredibly good looking and good in the bedroom. Um, and she rises to this position of power as this very powerful king's uh, chief wife. So what can we take from this book? Um, I've picked out a couple of minor themes and a couple of major themes just from these first couple of chapters that I'd like to share with you today. One of the, and when I say minor themes, they might be, end up being major. I don't know, you know, you've got to be careful when you define things as minor and major. But one of the themes that I wanted to look at for a minute is the role of mentors in Esther's life. It's quite interesting. There are two men mentioned here who mentor her. There's Mordecai, her uncle, cousin, uh, whatever quite he was, and there is Hegai, the eunuch, inside the, the, the king's palace. And uh, mentors, uh, that those two men made sure that they prepared her and advised her to the best of their ability. She's a very young woman, um, and she is humble enough and willing enough to accept their advice uh, so that she um, does things, that goes about things the right way and ends up in this incredible position of power and influence, which later on we'll see uh, saves God's people from ethnic um, genocide. 
So mentors are so important in all of our lives, aren't they? I, I feel incredibly blessed. It's something that um, must have been pointed out to me fairly early in my life. And we didn't use the term mentoring back in the 1970s when I became a Christian. But uh, I, I became a Christian. Uh, I was the first in my family to become a Christian. And so I, I remember a friend of mine and I, and we were, you know, through Scripture Union, so we read the Bible a lot. And we found this verse, I can't remember what book it's in now, about the older women should teach the younger women. And she was in a similar family situation to me. And I remember we were looking at this perplexed and thinking, well, what are we going to do? Who are the older women who are going to teach us? So we went along to the wife of um, uh, Jim Rawson, who'd been our camp director on the first Scripture Union camps we went on and who was the CEO of Scripture Union for many years. We, we picked a very wise one. Um, and we, we said to Joy, we've read this verse about the older women teaching the younger women. Will you teach us? And I think she was a little bit shocked at the time. We were about 18, probably 17, 18. Um, but we, we got invited over to the Rawson's place, usually about once a month, for dinner. And they had three small children at the moment, um, and at the time, I should say. And we would sit with them and we'd have family devotions with them after dinner. And then Jim would go off and do scripture union things. The kids would go to bed and uh, Jane and I would sit and listen to Joy and just talk to her about things and ask her questions. And she was probably my first you know, real mentor that way. I mean, Jim was a mentor to me as well too, Jim Rawson. I remember when I was at uni, I used to drop into his office, um, you know, again, probably about once a month. And I'd I'd have a list of questions I'd saved up from what I've been reading in the Bible. And he'd give me up to an hour and a half of his time. And when I went to work at Scripture Union, I knew how busy he was. I can't believe that he gave, he would give me an hour to an hour and a half of his time, you know, whenever I dropped in. He was never in a hurry to get rid of me. So uh, mentors are incredibly powerful. And, and even today, you know, I have a number of mentors, people who will stick up for me. The lady who was um, our former principal at Somerville House, a lady called Dr. Ness Goodwin, who's a wonderful Christian woman as well as an outstanding educational leader who came back last year out of retirement to help us. And she and I have become good friends over the years. And she just takes such care for me. And as a Christian and as a, you know, someone in education who understands, it's such a blessing. If you're a young person... Make sure you've got mentors in your life and choose wise ones, please. Ask God to lead you to really good ones because there's some rubbish ones out there too. But, um, you know, make sure you've got mentors. But whatever age you're at, um, it's great to have those older people. And it's a, a sad thing in my life as I approach the age of 60 that some of my mentors are passing away, you know, and some of them are elderly. One's in a nursing home and, you know, she's not entirely with it these days. She's a bit forgetful and so on. And it is actually a, a point of some sadness, you know, when they get to that stage. And then you sort of hope that you've picked up enough to be a mentor to others. And if you are older, please be a mentor. Look for opportunities to do that. Pass on your wisdom. Trust your wisdom, what God has taught you over the years. Uh, but again, only if you're one of the wise ones. Uh, but, you know, look, look for opportunities to offer yourself as a mentor uh, to younger people. It's a tremendous role to be able to play. And um, I've, I've always – but it's the sort of thing you can't force yourself into that role with someone. They have to invite you. And that's that's very important thing about being a mentor. The second uh, minor theme, I suppose, is – Sharing information on a needs-to-know basis. This was an interesting one. Um, Esther chooses throughout her, the story not to reveal her ethnic heritage. And again, the commentaries say perhaps she was somewhat you know, morally compromised by not telling people that she was Jewish. But uh, you know, does that make her morally compromised? Mordecai had given her that advice to you know, not mention, I suppose, that she came from a Jewish background um, because that would have gone against her in the selection of a wife for the king. Uh, I don't, again, I don't believe it makes her morally compromised. I think sometimes it's best not to reveal everything about yourself until people get to know you. Now, that's just wisdom, isn't it? And uh, I mean, I'm a chaplain um, in a, a Uniting Church Presbyterian school. And um, my name's O'Gorman, so some people assume that I'm Catholic, actually. But uh, not many people, no one much knew at the start, except those who appointed me, that I'm actually in an ACC church. 
And really, that's probably not the way it should be. Uh, but I don't necessarily tell people that until it comes up. I don't lie about it. And I don't avoid it if they ask me directly what church I go to. But um, it's something that it's best if they know you first before you tell them that. That's just wisdom, isn't it? You know, oh, she's, she's not bizarre. You know, she's not weird. She doesn't sort of, she's not extreme. Uh, I remember that being asked in my interview. Are you, you're not going to do anything extreme, are you? I said, hmm. Depends how you define that. <laughs> Depends how you define that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, that's, a, that's a wise thing to do. And, it's, again, it's not about lying. It's just being about wise, being wise about what you reveal about yourself in certain situations until people get to know you. Once they know you, you can get away with a lot. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, that's, a, that's a, a, little, a little theme that comes along. The major themes that I've picked up from these first couple of chapters, and some of these I'm sure Leanne and Joy will pick up on in the rest of the book too. The first I, th- I found an interesting contrast between Esther and Vashti as women and with their actions. I'm guessing that both of these women were repulsed by the king, um, but they reacted in very different ways and, of course, experienced very different outcomes. Vashti was defiant, and she certainly got her message across, uh, but that was the end of the game for her. There was no more chances then to influence what was going on. Uh, Esther was compliant, but as we shall see in future weeks, only to a point. Uh, She chose very carefully what to go along with and what to stand up to. And boy, don't we need that wisdom in this world today. What we go along with um, and what we stand up to. We need very wise and very courageous. Um, I heard a speaker last year, I've bought his book but haven't read it yet, Sam Chan. He's an Australian evangelist. If you ever get to hear him, he's great. He's an incredible guy. He's got a PhD in theology. He's a surgeon, so he's got degrees in medicine. And he's a stand-up comedian. How do you get all those sort of gifts? And uh, being an Asian Australian, he loves to tell jokes against himself and his people. But uh, he was talking last year, uh, I went to a breakfast, the City Bible Forum, uh, running this breakfast in town. And someone asked the question, they, they were having a rainbow day at their workplace and everyone was forced to be involved in one way or another, to support um, the cause of, of, of you know, gay marriage has sort of just been um, approved and so on at that stage. And this young man was asking, what should I do as a Christian in that situation? And Sam talks about four possible responses that we can have to those kind of moral challenges that we face in our workplace, our school, our university, society, uh, and how in different parts of the Bible, different people have used all four. So there's no one right answer as to how to react, um, and they've been used effectively. God has blessed them. The first thing you can do, and this is, I think, what um, Vashti did, you can be a whistleblower. You just confront the evil, take, call it for what it is, and take the consequences. I think the prophet Jeremiah is a great example of that. You know, he did not compromise one bit on his message, and he ended up being thrown down wells and all sorts of other things happened. But he, he, he took that, that role, to be a whistleblower. The second thing you can do is to remove yourself from the situation completely, to withdraw peacefully, and to play no further role. And I think the Jewish people, uh, in a sense, did that when they were in the Promised Land. They kept their boundaries very tight. They did not intermarry with the people around them. That was the instruction. Um, and they kept the, their worship of God pure by removing themselves from the other nations around them. So sometimes that's the right response. Thirdly, you can stay around and subvert what is going on. You can get yourself involved and bring about change from the inside. And Daniel and his friends, I think, are a great example of this. Uh, yeah, Daniel d- did what needed to be done, but there were certain things he wouldn't compromise on. Uh, and by going along with so much, um, you know, dressing the way they dressed and eating, um, well, not eating the food they ate, actually, but uh, go- going along with the training and so on he was receiving, I'm sure a lot of what he was being taught was against his religion even, but he just went along with it and then ended up in a position of power. And Esther, I think, later in the story, very much finds herself in that situation. The fourth thing is, I suppose, 
is to compromise, to go as far as you can, work out what is cultural baggage and what is important and not to compromise on that. So there are, it's, it's always good to reflect, I think, as Christians and as a church body as to the rules that we have, both the spoken and the unspoken rules. Are they really from the Bible or are they just things that we've made up, rules that we've made up? And to be willing to say, why don't we kind of change the cultural baggage? What is, it's like Christianity in Australia versus Christianity in other parts of the world. Or, or even in Australia, when the British came to Australia, who thought it was a good idea for men to wear neckties in Australia in a tropical climate? You know, seriously, I, I feel for you guys. It's terrible business. I mean, that's just a bit of cultural baggage. That's, you know, wearing a tie to church, and I don't think there are any, any ties. Not one tie. Not one tie. Excellent. Not one tie here. But there was a time when that's what you did when you, when you um, came to church. Uh, hats, yeah, hats for women and so on. These things are cultural baggage, and, uh, you know, maybe it's time for us to think very carefully. I think a lot of churches are doing that, and I think that's great. I think that might be sort of closer to Esther here in Chapter 2. So we need incredible wisdom in the world that we're living in to know which of these approaches to apply when faced with, that, um, with challenging circumstances. And Sam Chan, when he spoke about this last year, didn't give that young man any particular advice. He said, you've got to work out which of those four is appropriate for you in that situation. And the other thing we need to do is to be respectful of our Christian brothers and sisters who choose a different path. You know, and that's a challenge too. You know, we don't want. To, you know, we've got to be very careful here because compromise is compromise, and you know, there's the wrong sort of compromise, definitely. But let's be very respectful and try to help and understand our Christian brothers and sisters who go around about things in a different way to how we do and make different decisions. I admire Christians in politics for that reason. I don't know how they can do what they do. I listen to Tim Mander every time I hear him because he used to be my supervisor at Scripture Union at one stage and they have to scoot around the edges of honesty, it's the nicest way to put it, um, toe the party line. Um, but what an incredible opportunity for influence to be in that position. But I do, I do admire them. I couldn't do it myself, I don't think. I'm a bit too much of a whistleblower. Um, and the second major theme, I believe, in the book of Esther, and I'm not going to say too much about this because it will come up a lot in coming weeks, uh, is positioning oneself for influence. Positioning oneself for influence. Mordecai is a great example of this. The Jewish people were a minority group in exile. They were nobodies in that culture. There they were. There weren't many of them, and they were completely at the very bottom of the pecking order. But he seems to have, Mordecai seems to have a constant awareness that he and Esther should make the most of events as they play out, uh, even, even using Esther's natural beauty and sexuality. That's four times I beat Josh. Um, <laughs> using Esther's natural beauty and sexuality to achieve God's purposes. Uh, that seems a bit ooh, to us, doesn't it? But, you know, it was what it was. He's constantly positioning himself with Esther, himself and Esther with a view to the fact that sometime in the future their favour with the king will be extremely valuable to God's purposes. And that certainly proves to be the case. So even passing on that information about the, plot, the uh, planned assassination of the king, those little things end up being very important, as we'll see in coming weeks. We need to be doing the same thing. Reflect on the particular gifts abilities, characteristics, ethnic background, even the relatives that God has given you and work out how God might use these things to put you in a position of influence. How can you use those things for the furtherance of God's kingdom? You know, Christian sports stars, it's wonderful to see them in those situations being great role models. I worked at BBC with a fellow called Matthew McEwen, who's now their head of boarding. And Matthew was an Australian athlete, a decathlon champion, and got a silver medal at the Manchester Commonwealth Games. And to have a guy like that as on the Christian education staff team was gold, you know. 
he wasn't an academic, but gee, you know, he was an absolute Adonis when it came to the sporting field. And, and, and the boys just, you know, hung off him because, hung off every word he said because of that particular aspect. So he was willing to use that, you know, uh, for, the, for the purposes of God's kingdom. Um, how can, I mean, the thing is, we've got to do that with integrity. Uh, how do we do that with integrity? How do we use those gifts that God's given us um, with integrity? Uh, I find myself in that situation a lot at the school that I'm at, and I've been involved in youth work now for over 40 years, which is quite remarkable. And I was saying to someone the other day when that anniversary came about last year, I wasn't someone that would I'd be ideally suited to youth work. I've always been a bit quirky and, you know, not you know, there's a whole lot of reasons why. And yet, you know, God has been willing to, to use me. So I look at the things that I can do and I try to make the most of those. So, you know, I'm, I, can, I'm, I don't mind public speaking. I quite like public speaking, so I'm happy to do that. Um, I've got a math science background and I make sure people know that. Uh, if I'm meeting them for the first time, we've got some consultants at our school at the moment looking at a whole restructure. And it was really funny. They, uh, I had an interview with them on Friday and they invited me in, very serious looking people from Melbourne or Sydney or somewhere. And um, I sat down and they, they treat you like the chaplain, you know, the religious person. So I straight up, the first thing I said was, well, the first thing you need to know about me is that I'm not a, I'm not a minister. Relax. Okay. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm actually a math science teacher. Oh. You know, and they sit up in their seats. Uh, so my perspective on the school is a little bit different from what a chaplain might normally be. And suddenly it changed the whole tone uh, of the meeting and of the conversation. It was quite interesting. So I, I will use that, you know, and that's useful for the girls to know that someone who, you know, has done a degree in maths and science and teaches maths and science uh, is, is still prepared to believe in God. Uh, I'm prepared to be an idiot. It's something I do really well. And... Uh, it's, uh, it's very interesting. We, um, we sort of accidentally got ourselves into a... I accidentally got myself into an ABBA tribute band a couple of years ago at school. And uh, you may not even recognise me in those photos. But uh, anyway, we've now done four performances. So it's really um, quite a lot of fun. And uh, I, I find, particularly since as the chaplain, I'm the person that's associated with all the really sad stuff that happens at school. We've had a lot of sad stuff for the last couple of years. So as I was explaining to my new principal, this is really important. You know, I might run a funeral one week and then do this the next week and that's completely consistent because it's very important for people to see uh, who I am. I'm a little bit uh, obsessed about Doctor Who but not as much as people think I am. And so even my Doctor Who bedspread and Doctor Who coffee mug and Doctor Who ringtone on my phone, um, all of it, you know, it sort of can be helpful. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Uh, so all of that sort of helps to connect with certain members of the school community. Now, I don't want to um, steal Joy and Leanne's thunder but the third theme that I, that I want to touch on is that Esther is all about, in my mind, the invisible hand of God. Um, I think it is God's sense of humour that in a story where he isn't even mentioned, um, that it is demonstrated so incredibly powerfully how the invisible God is most definitely at work, even, though the action, even through the actions and de decisions of a despot. And that's great encouragement to those of us who might feel that we're in positions of being very disempowered. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. God can work through even those... None, none of the people that are powerful over you are as powerful as King Xerxes was, right? So, Ahasuerus uh, or whatever his name was. But, uh, you know, it, none of them are as powerful as him, you know, um, and yet God can still work even through a despot like him. This is an incredible encouragement to us, uh, particularly as we look sometimes close to despair at how society is changing around us or if we are the victim of a costly injustice in our personal life. We do not give up hope. God is faithful and his power and compassion and justice will not fail. Wrongs will be righted. God is still on the throne no matter how things are going just at this moment. And the great news is God can turn things around 
on a dime, you know, that saying, against the play, overcoming the most powerful of, as a, of our adversaries, as we will see uh, later on in the book of Esther. Our job in the middle of this, what's our responsibility? It's to be faithful in obedience to God, to take care to obey all his commands and to act as blamelessly as we can. It's so important if we are to be criticised that it is not for our, about for our behaviour, but it's for our faith. If you're going to be criticised, be criticised for your faith, not your behaviour. Daniel experienced that. And there's this wonderful verse from First Peter that's one of my favourites. In your hearts, always honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So it's very important for us to keep our slates clean, no matter how uh, we might be filled, uh, tempted to feel otherwise. To choose our actions carefully in response to the very real complexities of our world. I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of the story of Esther. I mean, we know the story. But I'm looking to hear uh, Leanne and um, Joy unpack uh, lots of truths from it. It's, it's been a wonderful exercise to dig into it a bit more myself. Um, and it's just a, a, a wonderful book with lots of wonderful stories. But I just wondered if it's okay, if I may beg your indulgence, to finish off with a couple of stories about what God is doing at school. Because I love to take that opportunity when I'm up here. And it's, been a, it's been a good year. We've got, so far, we've got a new principal uh, who's lovely. She's someone who really respects God. And we've got a, we're building a wonderful uh, working relationship. And um, it's, it's just great. I think, you know, the school's in really good hands. For those of you who, who pray, who receive my prayer letter, thank you so much for your prayers. Um, I just want to tell you a couple of quick stories stories about people, things that are going on. Um, I had a phone call just uh, the week before the Easter holidays from a lady I taught with uh, back at BBC, um, who's a Chinese lady, been a Buddhist her whole life, now retired, 65 or whatever, and very thick Chinese accent said, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to have dinner with you. And we used to catch up quite a lot, but we'd sort of lost touch. And she said, I have something to tell you. And as soon as she said that, I knew what she was going to say. She said, I have become a Christian. And uh, I, I knew her two boys were Christians, and we'd had different conversations over the years. And I was, it was just so wonderful to listen to her talk and, and to hear the things that she said. You know, she now goes to a, a Baptist church. She's involved in a ladies' Bible study group there, and they're obviously discipling her. But what a turnaround. She just knew that this, her religion, that she'd been in all her life, and she went to temple every week, you know. She was a serious, a serious Buddhist. Um, you know, it, it, she said, I knew that my life was missing something and she said you know the people at the temple couldn't help her she said the priest gave me something a chant to say I said it 100,000 times and it did not help isn't that incredible you know and she said she was at home one day and her uh, one of her sons when he'd left home to get married had given her a, a picture a computer generated picture of the face of Christ and she said it's amongst our family photos on the stairs and she said I was feeling bad about my life standing there looking at it and she said it suddenly lit up and I turned around and there was no light and there was no, the sunlight couldn't get through the curtains or anything. I looked back and it was still lit up among the other pictures. And she said, at that moment, I surrendered my life to God. I think, just what a powerful story, you know. God can do anything. And, uh, and, it, it's just, and she said, I, I'm, I'm finding it very hard to explain exactly what's happened. And I said, but everything is different. And I said, absolutely, absolutely. Don't worry, I understand completely. So God is at work. It's just wonderful. And another girl we've had who's got chronic anxiety and we've got lots of young people these days in our schools with anxiety and 
um, you know, Christian family. Um, she came on our weekend camp the other day and her life has just completely turned around. So God is touching lives. And, you know, she gave her testimony at a meeting we had just this last week. And just to hear how God has taken that anxiety. And, and, and at the moment, you know, she's just, just walking without it. And uh, it's turned around. She said, I, I feel like I'd lost God, but I've, I've found him again on this camp. And uh, I've reconnected with him. It's just wonderful. But we've got sad things going on too that I'd love your prayer for. I've got a woman who's uh, one of our staff who's got stage four cancer and she's at home at the moment having treat, treatment. But she said to me a number of months ago, I want to reconnect with faith and uh, I want to reconnect with God. So, uh, and it was just the day before that ABBA performance actually. And my mind was full of, have we prepared enough? Have we rehearsed enough? And I thought, stop. This is the most important thing that's been said to you all week respond to it and so we're doing Christianity Explained um, I'm doing it through home visits at the moment because she's at home having treatment but I'd, I'd love you to pray for her because it's uh, very challenging um, she's, she's going to a church uh, near where she lives which is wonderful so thank you so much for praying for me and if you feel that you're in situations like maybe Esther and Mordecai were in where you're overwhelmed get someone to pray with you because there is always hope there's hope for change and there, there's, uh, there's hope that God will turn things around on a dime but sometimes we have to wait a long time to see that. 65 years a Buddhist and now she's a Christian. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you. Amen. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website at www.homecommunityworld.com.au Join us, and we hope you have been encouraged by this.